morning, Victory City family. So gracious um, that you are joining back with us again this week. I pray that you have had a phenomenal week. Pray that you have seen the expression of God's love and grace and mercy in your life this week. I'm uh, so, so ready to, to jump into this sermon this week. I've really, really thought about this a lot this week. It has really been on my heart. It's really been on my mind. And I've been really excited just to present it to you. Um, so far, we have been working through Acts, as you know, and we have seen a very distinct period in the New Testament church where we are seeing that the, there is a great amount of unity, there's a great amount of peace, there's a great amount of love and, and functionality to the body of Christ and almost utopian in a sense. And I think what we've seen is what a lot of people believe that the church should be is when they come to salvation, when they come to saving faith, they expect it to be peace and unity and harmony and, and roses and no trouble, no turmoil. And that's been great. And we've seen and I think we've all learned a lot about how we should function as a body of Christ in that. But we're coming to a period now and we're seeing a dramatic turn in the history of the church by which we go from peace to persecution. Now, there are several elements that we want to be able to see today in why the church goes from that peace and love and security to such staunch persecution. But I want you to understand that even as we work through this today, as we learn about what persecution does for the church, I want you to be reminded of this fact, that persecution is a tool that God uses to grow the church. He uses persecution to strengthen the church. And so if there's anything that we're looking for in today's sermon is that while the church itself will never be uh, rid of persecution, and even if we're not rid of persecution in our own lives, just know that persecution is used by God, but it's also a validating factor that we are enemies of Satan. He never persecutes those who are his own. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So the fact that we would suffer any persecution that God would allow it means that we're probably fighting the right fight of faith. And so what I want you to see today is that it's a corollary truth. The more obedient we are, the more expected God has behaviors and things that he is looking for out of our lives. But the more that will invite the enemy into our lives. And what we want to see is that that while it leads to great suffering and while it leads to great affliction, it leads to great glory for God. And so I want you to take a look at the sermon today as we've been walking through from peace to persecution. Part one. So. This sermon will take us a great deal of time to walk through as it covers a lot of verses. And I don't want to mince too many words. I want to really just jump into the word today. But I do want you to see that as persecution increases, it allows the church of God to expand. Let's look at the word of God. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, at whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. 
And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand, the right hand, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed them, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has been given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word, Lord. We know that as defenders of the faith, it invites a great amount of persecution in our lives. It invites a great amount of persecution into the life of the church. God, we pray that we would see this as a tool to grow the church, to expand the church, to glorify your name, and that we know that even as we suffer, even as we are afflicted, we are doing so for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Lord, please teach us how to be bonded together, even in our persecution. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice here is that Luke is writing about this lame beggar, yes, but he's not really actually talking about him. Inasmuch as this event happens because of him, it's not really about him. Luke, following the order of God, is using this man as the event to set the stage for what God was actually trying to do. And what God was actually doing was allowing Peter to share the truth of the gospel before all of these men. He was intentionally allowing him to preach this sermon to invite the attention of the enemies of the faith to further expand the reach of the gospel. So let's look here at what God allowed in order for the gospel to continue to go forth. First of all, we know that God does all things so that he may be glorified. Now, we've talked about this before. Why does God need glorification? He doesn't need glorification. But as we've mentioned before, when God allows us to see his glory, it allows for us to see his nature and his attributes. And so we learn more about God as he is glorified in our lives. Remember, Jesus even said that God afflicts people so that the glory of who he is may be shown to us. So the first thing we do is look at this text and see where the glory of God is being shown and to whom and by whom is being shown to us. 
So we see here that this is another man who has been afflicted since birth. And much like the others, he is at the temple and he is waiting and begging desperately for alms to be handed to him. Free gifts of money and support. Now, what's amazing here is how the sovereignty of God coincides with where this man was in his life and where Peter and John were in their lives. Now, the Bible says here that they go up at the ninth hour. Now, at the ninth hour means that they were there about 3 p.m. and there are three different times of prayer. Now, perhaps Peter was going to the temple in order to pray, but that probably isn't the most likely situation. It's probably likely that he knew that a large amount of people would again be descending to the temple. And so he makes sure that he's headed to the temple in order to preach the gospel. Now, as he is doing this, he sees that God divinely appoints him to be where this other man was also divinely appointed to be. Now, you say, well, how do I know that God divinely appointed Peter to be where he was and also divinely appointed this man to be where he was? Well, Every place that we are in life is a divine appointment of God. God is sovereign and in control of everything. So wherever we are, no matter how we got there, it only happens because God allows it and because God permits it. God in his sovereignty not only allowed this man to be born, but he allowed this man to be born crippled. When he allows this man to be born crippled, he allows him to be born crippled. He allows him to be at the gate every day awaiting alms so that in the day that Peter and John would come across him, they would speak to him. He would be healed and then it would be to the glory of God. Now, you see that and you probably think, aha. That's why God did it. God specifically does this in order to show the people all around what a, an amazing miracle working God that he is. He heals this man who's been crippled from birth so that we can all see his glory. That's exactly why God does what he does. And you're right to a degree. God does it not just to heal this man. And I would actually probably say he heals this man as a byproduct of him showing his great glory. See, when God heals this man, the man immediately goes out and he is praising and jumping and running and leaping, doing things that he never would have been able to do unless he had been healed. And while he's doing this, he forces himself to encounter a larger group of people who are looking at him in wonderment and amazement, trying to figure out how in the world did this man who was crippled from birth go from lame to heal? He showed up at the temple every single day. And this one day, he has a divine appointment with these two men because of where he was in his life, because how God sovereignly made him that way, and because God had implanted in them the desire to preach the word of God faithfully, and they have this encounter. Look at what the encounter says, though, and that is really important for us to see this. Peter looks at this man, and the first commandment that he gives this man is to look at us. Now, the man very likely may have been looking in a totally different direction or perhaps he's holding his head down to look especially pitiful. I don't know, but I do know that Peter commands him to look at them. Now, when he looks up, the Bible says the man has in his heart the intention 
thinking that he's going to get something, some sort of gift, gift, some sort of alms from Peter and John, and Peter doesn't do it. In fact, what Peter says is, I don't have silver and gold for you, but what I do have, I give to you. Now, I've heard a lot of people when they're referencing this scripture, they use that but that's there as a, as a sign that what Peter had wasn't as good as silver and gold. But that's not how Peter is saying it. He says, like, silver and gold, I don't have for you, but what I do have, I give to you. That but means a whole lot difference if you say it that way. It's not just saying that I have something of lesser degree. What I have for you is, isn't even comparable to what you think silver and gold is. What I have is far greater than what you already have and what you may desire. And what Peter had for this man, it wasn't just his physical healing, but it was the gospel of Jesus Christ and the opportunity to faithfully preach that gospel before this man and all the men who are around him. He says, I don't have it, but what I have is priceless. It doesn't corrupt. It doesn't rust. It doesn't get old, and it gets sweeter every day that you have it, and that is saving faith. You can't buy this. Now, do you notice how Peter responds? Peter knows for a fact that what he has for this man is far greater than what the man thinks that he actually needs. The Lord has specifically orchestrated this meeting divinely so that he could arrange for this man to be healed, for the people to see this man healed, for Peter to take that as an opportunity to preach the gospel. When Peter preaches that gospel, for those people to get angry at Peter, to have such anger towards him that they persecute the church and so that through that persecution, the church is expanded. Now, a lot of times we see God as fatalistic, as a butterfly approach, a butterfly effect that if you make this decision, God is having to reorchestrate his will around the decisions we make. But the fact of the matter is this. We are orchestrating our decisions around the very will of God. Everything that we do or don't do happens because God either permitted it or did not. We are totally in subjection to the will of God. Even when we wake up in the morning and the decisions that we make, we only are capable and able to make those decisions because God in his infinite wisdom and power has sovereignly permitted us to make those decisions all according to his sovereign will and sovereign plan. And so what he does here is he gives this man an encounter with Jesus Christ because of this divine appointment that God had orchestrated. And a man who was once crippled is now able to walk, but he's also completely transformed by Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting here is that we know that Luke is a physician. Because Luke is a physician, he could have given some magnanimous diagnosis of how this man was healed, but he doesn't. He says that his feet and ankles were now made strong and the man who was once lame and crippled is able to get up and walk and leap. And they were amazed. Now, the reason they're so amazed is because they know that from his birth, this man is paralyzed and they're amazed that they're able to do this. And I think it was that very fact that angered Peter. 
because they were amazed and they wondered at what power do you do this? How are you able to do this? And it probably boiled over in Peter. And so he looks at them and says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own piety we have made him walk? Peter's addressing them almost indignantly because he's like, you know exactly how we were able to do this. And for you to think that we did this according to our righteousness? No, our righteousness is nothing. It is as filthy rags. We don't have any power. We were able to do this because of Jesus Christ. There was this wonderment and amazement, but for probably two reasons. One reason is they're looking at what happened and they're thinking, that's some kind of power those men have. How can we attain that power? Peter's probably able to perceive this. And so in his anger, he lets them know this is not any power of our own, but this is divine, supernatural power that God has given to us. That's the first thing. But the second thing that angers him is, you know where we got this power from. It, we got the power from God. By the way, let me explain to you who God is. And he's not just listing names here, but he's listing the patriarchs in the faith. This is the God of, of Abraham. This is the God of Isaac. This is the God of Jacob. And by the way, that's the God who gave us this power, the very one who glorified his son, Jesus Christ. By the way, the very man that you handed over to Pilate to be crucified. That's how we got this power. Now, as he says this, Peter is evoking a lot, a lot of anger and probably vitriol and even guilt. But he's not evoking guilt for the sake of evoking guilt. He's doing it so that as in his previous sermon, when he said very similar words, and the Bible says that those people were cut to the heart, he is hoping that these words would lead these unregenerate men to repentance. That's why he's doing this. But the other aspect to this is, as he is boldly preaching the truth of the gospel, he is inviting the persecution that will be awaiting him. Peter gives this amazing synopsis of the gospel where he said that Jesus was the author of life. And he perfectly surmises the gospel. He surmises perfectly what happened. Now, you remember a few weeks ago I mentioned that preaching the gospel is like this in such volatile areas is, is difficult. And you are inviting the opportunity to be killed for the faith. But reading this, it was convicting for me personally because I realized that there are many opportunities that we have to stand firm on the truth of the gospel, to invite persecution and perhaps even loss in our own lives, not even to the degree that these men were inviting it, maybe in our home, maybe to our neighbor, maybe on our job, and we sit like silent statues 
having the truth of the gospel inside of us. Remember, if the gospel is hidden, it's hidden to those who are lost. These men were intentionally putting themselves in violent situations so that the people who heard this truth that hated them would be saved. And we have people that we claim to love every single day because we don't want to disrupt the nature of that friendship that we will not even share the gospel with on the day to day basis. Yet we have men who knew that they were in violent territory and if violence erupted, there would have been nothing they could do to withstand it other than cling to the grace of God. Now, as as we know and as we see, God in his providence was healing a man. He was preaching the gospel and he was inviting persecution. Now, you may think, I want to take time right here. Why does God want to see his church persecuted. Now, the mistake that people make is that when it comes to persecution, they believe that persecution itself is solely an instrument of Satan used to destroy the church. And to a degree, they're right. But if persecution is the instrument of Satan, then Satan is the instrument of God. Because God is the one who allows Satan to use the persecution in the first place. Now, you may think, well, why does God need persecution to grow the church? Doesn't it make more sense that prosperity would grow the church? Doesn't it make more sense that if people saw that the church was growing, that that would bring more people in? The problem with that is that you presume you know what growth is. Growth for God is not that we grow numerically, but is that we grow from the inside out. If we solely only come to save in faith because we know that it provides a better life, a more prosperous life for here, us here on earth, then everybody would believe. Everybody would come to him. But the people who come to him know that it's a life of persecution that brings us prosperity in the next life. Think about it like this. When you have a good experience with someone, who do you tell? Your mom? Maybe you don't tell many people when you have a good experience, you think, oh, that was a wonderful experience I had with that person. I enjoyed it. But you don't tell many people. But think about what happens when you have a bad experience. You can't wait to tell anybody. You tell everybody who will listen what a horrible experience I had with so and so. Now, in that same way, God uses the hate and the vitriol that the world has for the church as a means to grow the church because in their hate, they disgust the church. They can't let the church go. We see it even in our world how people are always bringing up the positions of the church, even if the church is silent on the issue because the church is always inviting the persecution of the world. God uses this attention that is being brought on the church to grow the church and unfortunately in many times when we have opportunities to speak up and stand up for our faith we are silent because we don't want to get embarrassed on Facebook We don't want our family members to be angry at us. We don't want to lose our jobs, yet we have men who are willing to lose their lives for the gospel. What are we doing, people? What are we doing? 
I've watched even during these times of social unrest and, and persecution and even these times of coronavirus and I've seen the church get caught up in political schisms and it's like this is a great opportunity for the church to stand up for the word of God and we've gotten lost. Listen, the church doesn't grow because it's comfortable. And this is the thing, and this is why comfortable Christianity is so damning and why so many people are chasing it because they don't want to be tested. They don't want to be tried. They don't want to be persecuted. And so they go to churches that preach comfortable Christianity so that they don't have to worry about maybe losing their life or maybe losing their finances or losing their home for the sake of the gospel. Listen, it was never supposed to be comfortable. Church doesn't grow because it's comfortable. We grow because we have a common enemy who is unrelenting and would like nothing more than for us to sit down, rest on our laurels, make our money, build our houses, and die with our mouths closed. That's what the enemy wants. God placed these men in situations where people wanted to kill them because of this gospel. Yet they wouldn't relinquish it. And as they were placed in these situations, as the hate of them grew, so did their message. They never stopped in their proclamation. They knew that every time they stepped up in a new location, they were risking their lives. But the alternative simply wasn't an option. They could have said, well, it's too dangerous. We're not going to make any money. Peter has a wife. Oh, I, I need to go back home. I need to be comfortable. I need to be financially stable. They don't do what we do. We make our decisions. I need to have all this. I need to have all that. What if this doesn't work out? What if I don't make any money preaching? What if I don't make any money as a missionary? What if I die? What if I go to another country and lose my life? They're not thinking about this. Think about this. They're not saying we don't want to offend or upset anyone. Think about the great men and women in the Bible. Think about the three Hebrew boys. Here they are coming to a furnace, and literally all they have to do is bow. That's all they have to do. They ain't really mean anything to God. They're just bowing. You're bowing so that, you know what, if you bow, then you can live and keep preaching the truth, right? Come on. All they had to do was bow, but they didn't. They didn't live quiet lives, but in the face of evil, they stood firm on the truth. Now, what happens if they don't bow? Then there's no, there's no noise. Nobody knows who they are. We don't ever hear about them. And Nebuchadnezzar never sees God deliver them out of the furnace for standing for that truth. And his heart has never changed for seeing it. See, sometimes we think that being quiet in the midst of turmoil in the world is the way that God wants us. But when we stand out, we must stand firmly on the truth of God so that people see that as the arrows come to us, whether they pass us or take us out, that we stood firm on the truth of the gospel. God's sovereignty is not for our lives to be easy, but it is so that the glory he gets out of our lives will point people back to him. As we close with part one, I want you to hear this. We need persecution. We need persecution. 
Your name may never be great. It may never be written in the world's greatest books or sung about in the world's greatest plays. But therein is this truth that your life was God's all of your days. That's it. That's it. Be bold with this gospel. Invite your adversary to this table of truth. And even if your life is threatened because of the gospel, even if your life is lost, just know that it was for eternal gain. Be bold with this truth. I was listening to a sermon just this past Wednesday, and the sermon was about death. And it was about how at 19 years old, possibly the greatest American theologian, Jonathan Edwards, was consumed. He was consumed about thoughts of his death, but not grieving in the way that we grieve, but how he was earnestly looking forward to the day that he would be separated from this decaying body and united with God. And in his sermon, the preacher said that that's not how people are in this day. We are fleeing death at any cost. People pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to look like they're not dying, to look like they're not getting older. People don't even talk about death because they want to put it off as long as they possibly can. And they will hook themselves up to every machine to keep death from happening. But the ultimate reality for all of us is that death will happen. We're not raptured. Death will happen for every single one of us, including me. That is the reality. Now, you may think, what's the relationship between death and persecution? Because many of us are so afraid that what the Bible says about the eternal weight of glory that awaits us because we're so afraid that it's not true because there is a hint of doubt in us that what if I devote my whole life to this and it turns out that this wasn't true? What if I devote my whole life to this and it was a lie and I don't wake up on the other side? That's the great fear that all of us have. It's not just that we're going to die. It's that we're going to die having wasted the only life that we had because we believed the lie. Let me tell you like this. As long as you have that mentality, there is nothing you will ever do, do great for the faith because you're never sure that what you believe is actually true. So you'll never take a stand for the faith. You'll never look Satan in his eye. And threaten him with the word of God. You will never defend the scriptures. You will never do it because you don't even know that what you believe is actually the real thing. And so instead of welcoming persecution, we look for ways to preserve the life that we have right here. So as the world goes crazy, we sit silently. Afraid that we may lose our lives. And even more afraid that there's nothing else awaiting us. I can't think of a worse death than investing all of my life in what's happening here and now only to realize that this was dying and that I never really had an opportunity to live. And listen, you may not want to hear this in this season, especially because coronavirus is taking over and people are freaking out because it is bringing death right to their door. And it's not something that we should take lightly. We should bear that truth. Because the reality is, is that at any moment, at any moment, each one of us could be gone. 
And the only thing that will matter in that moment is not what you did with your life. It won't be that you were great. It was were you displaying the greatness of God in your life. That is how the church grew. Look at how God grew the church through all of these men who lost their life for the truth. Yeah, we talk about what faithful men they are, but we talk about why they died. What they believed, they believed that what they had seen was true. They knew that the Jesus they preached about was alive. He was risen and that he could save. Listen, unless you are secure in eternity, unless you know without a shadow of a doubt that there is an eternal weight of glory that is awaiting you, you will never be able to take a stand for the truth. As he spoke in that sermon, I immediately became um, conscious of the very fear of death that many of us feel. And because we feel it, we seek to flee persecution and we seek comfort. And instead of being radical defenders of our faith, we remain quiet and fearful that we may lose everything. But to have that fear. That is to give Satan the reins and the power of death. Listen to this scripture, Hebrews 2 and 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Listen, we have no fear of death. In past times, Satan used death as an angle. He used death as a means to keep us as prisoners to what he wanted us to do with our lives. But Jesus Christ has taken away the victory and the sting of death so that death no longer imprisons us, but death is the very thing that frees us. Listen, we have to live in a way that Paul and the other faithful disciples and apostles live where he's in prison writing and he is literally torn between the two desires. There was the desire that he had for the people, the love that he had for the people who remained and that was real and he didn't feel guilty for having that desire and he wanted to stay there with them to see the gospel go even further. That's the only reason we should dare remain here. So, well, I want to see my grandkids grow up. I want to see my children get married. I want to see this. But all those are selfish motivations to stay down here because at some point those things are going to happen and you're going to be gone. The only reason we should want to stay here is so that we can keep doing the work of God and we should really be torn. I'm torn between being down here doing the work of God, but I'm also torn because I want to be in eternal glory with him as well. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the reality is that death, death is going to be the vehicle that gets me there. That's the reality. And so I can't think of a more glorious way, a way that God will get more glory out of our lives than if we go out staunch defenders of the faith knowing that what we know is truth. We need not fear death because Jesus Christ took the power of death 
away from Satan. And like I said before, he lorded it over us. Satan lorded death over us. But they may be able to kill our bodies. They may. But God has our souls. Our souls are in the presence of God. So I'll close with this quote. And it's a quote, a very recent quote from John MacArthur. And it says this. Persecution doesn't destroy the church. It purges the church. Persecution does not destroy the church. It purges everyone who's not a part of it out of the church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for this time that we have had together, God. This is a weighty topic, and persecution is not something that many of us want to think about or deal with or rationalize in our minds, but the reality, God, is that there is a direct connection to saving faith and persecution, and we must, we must be willing to invite that because we know that in that persecution, God, that is your method, that is one of your tools for expanding the reach of the gospel, extending the reach of the gospel. So, God, please let us be bold for our faith. Let us not fear man. Let us not fear anything that may be happening, God, but let us boldly defend what we know is right, what we know is pure, what we know is truth. God, give us that courage. Give us that vigor. Give us that fervor. But give us that love that we need to defend the faith. It doesn't matter what they try to do to us. You are greater in us than he that is in the world. We believe that. And that there is eternal weight that awaits all of us. The weight of glory is in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I pray that this sermon has been a blessing to you. I pray that you have gotten a great deal of encouragement, a great deal of conviction as well. Very convicting for me. Um, you know, it is our great desire to live comfortable lives and live peaceful lives, but we must also stand for the truth. And so that my, my prayer is that as you see um, things happening in the world, that you will take the position of defending the gospel.